Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. I'm here with JT, who was my um, TA when I was <laughs> in my first year. So I'm excited to be doing um, an episode with him. But we're going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick and his two movies, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968, and um, his movie A Clockwork Orange, um, that came out in 1971, which was based off of um, a novel by the same name. Um, so we're going to start with 2001. Um, and I guess what's interesting is the way the film begins and the Dawn of Man sequence. And the whole aspect that these people ha- like hadn't been to the moon yet. I mean, Russia had sent something to the moon, but man hadn't been to the moon. They came out with this movie. Yeah, well, um, well, the beginning, the Dawn of Man sequence, you don't even have man. You have ape-like human figures <laughs> that are evolving right in front of your eyes, and it all happens with the presence of a monolith, this mysterious black slab that just appears in the middle of nowhere, and the the contact that these ape-like men have, or just apes at the at this time, really, have with the monolith is like a shift of consciousness. It shifts them into, into a new stage of evolution. And it's this kind of mind-bendingly weird notion that just, like, the presence of, of an extraterrestrial object is going to shift everything on Earth. Yeah. Which seems, like, very highly likely to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the way things are going now, we might need another one. (laughs) Um, But then in the second sequence, it jumps to the year 2001, which we have now bypassed, but they obviously had not yet. And it's, like, a super techie world, and people are in the weird, like, spacesuits that you think of, like, that would come out in 1968. Um, And so, what was... What was like your like? How did you going through the movie like interpret that sort of future? Well, really, what this the movie really presents this futuristic idea of of what the world will be, and it all revolves around capitalism and commercialism, but also this this faith in technology that that it will save us and we can reach the moon, we can inhabit the moon, we can go and explore all these places, um, which was a huge idea in the 1960s, really. I mean, not only uh, the, the capitalist elements, but the, with the tie-ins, there's so many tie-ins with, uh, with corporations within the movie that you see everywhere. Which also act, they act as identifiers and as signifiers, in order to make you believe that this that this reality this is reality this is what the future will be like. So um, I feel I feel as if this was Kubrick's way of making the audience believe that that that's what the future will be and and it grounds it in in some way. Yeah. And some of those, just so everyone knows, like, they use, like, RCA Whirlpool for some of the, like, toilets and stuff. Yes. Um, General Electric's, like, has, like, a missile and space vehicle division. 
or something? Well, so actually with the General Electric, you don't necessarily even see any branding with General Electric, but um, there's these two gentlemen, um, Fred Ordway and... um, uh, uh, Harry Lane. Harry Lane, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So these two gentlemen worked with NASA, um, and they were brought on by Arthur C. Clarke, who helped Stanley Kubrick write write the screenplay, and he also wrote a novel that came out at the same time. Oh. So this it wasn't a novel before; it, it happened simultaneously. Um, but it's also interesting that all these corporate tie-ins are not in the novel. So this is very much a Kubrickian, if I can use that <laughs> term, a tool that he uses um, in order to m- make sense of the future. Um, so he, what he really wanted to do is he wanted to make uh, this vision possible. And everything from the from the zero gravity toilet with RCA Whirlpool to the the like mission control centers, which they worked with IBM, um, and the the General Electric, um, the, all of all of these relationships were used as um, project like they were projecting what would be possible mm-hmm. in the year two thousand one, what they thought could actually be done by two thousand one. So. They, and they they kind of came up with like a speculative uh, like standard of what everything could be so everything fit within um, what they expected the technology to be yeah so they're all on the same plane yeah yeah so they're all grounded in the reality the in the expected reality yeah that's so interesting and so weird it'd be cool to go back and see like how much of it was really like like obviously I feel like most of it was around in 2001 yeah but I mean however we still don't have moon landings yeah and like we we, no one's gone to Jupiter yeah (laughs) Yeah. we you know we 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 don't there's so much we don't have but um but we do but there is a lot of it too yeah I mean there's there's a, a sequence when um they're on a lunar. It's not a lunar space station, but it's a like a almost like a layo. One of the gentlemen, um, I forgot his name. Um, in the second sequence, um, in the year two thousand one, when they try and go through. Um, Is that when there's all a bunch of men in the spacesuit? Uh, yeah, right before that. Yeah. So he stops at um, I think it's Jupiter two. <laughs> um. Anyway, he stops. A planet. Yeah, no. It, he's it's a it's a spaceship oh. where he has a layover. Where then he's going to the moon where they found the new monolith. Oh yeah, that's buried under the moon's surface. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated story. <laughs> um, so as when they're in that space, there's this is where you see so many corporate tie-ins. The develop the Hilton. Um, the Hilton Lounge, the Hilton Hotel space, these really beautiful Olivier Morg chairs that dot this white space in in this really kind of pinkish red that really, it's really beautiful. 
Um, and then there's the Howard Johnson Earthlight Lounge, <laughs> where you can where you can get all your snacks through vending machines. Um, but Bell Telephones actually had a what like a video booth where you could call and video chat with someone on Earth, and um, which it I mean we. <sighs> It's we have FaceTime now, where you can literally just hold your phone up, and it's kind of in a similar fashion. Um, it's a little more clunky when you have to have a whole booth instead of just on your phone. Yeah. Um, but we didn't really have FaceTime necessarily in two thousand one. Yeah, yet. true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, what did we have in two thousand one? Like flip phones, I guess. Still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are cool, though. Um, so, um, there is also. Um, so, okay, so I guess we should explain that there is this computer HAL, which some people think is IBM, just one letter, but in your paper you said there was, like, kind of, like, a contradiction about whether that was really... Yeah, so... But this, like, computer is crazy, like, it's just a supercomputer. Yeah, so HAL 9000, um, is the, uh... Is like the, is the main operating system of um, of the sh- of the sh- one of the ships. Um, don't remember the name of it exactly, but it's this. It's a it's a mainframe um, that is that controls every aspect of the ship, and it's infallible. It's known for being infallible. However, because its mission um, there's there's a programming error where it, it's telling the astronauts that they're going to do a routine mission however they're actually going to find the origin of a electromagnetic force that's happening beyond Jupiter and because it's programmed to lie to them, it starts to malfunction. And the, they realize, the two astronauts realize that it's malfunctioning and then try and turn it off. And that's when kind of chaos ensues, in a way. It, a very slow burn <laughs> chaos, uh, because it's Kubrick and he's not going to, like, nothing crazy is going to happen too fast. Um, to where the computer actually commits murder. It cuts the life, uh, it cuts the cord, literally, um, from, of an astronaut who's trying to put, uh, who's trying to put a piece of a satellite back together out in space, and he dies. And then when the other astronaut tries to go retrieve the body, how the computer won't open the pod bays, which, um, the open the pod bay doors, Hal, is one of the f- most famous um, quotes from the movie. Um, and it's kind of terrifying. I mean, there's a controversial idea of one of the astronaut doesn't have his helmet on, and he somehow manually enters into the spaceship, which, if that were... For everything that's carefully detailed so well in the movie, and everything's supposed to be super believable, I mean, he would have exploded. Yeah. Or imploded, sorry. <laughs> like, there's no way that he... Uh, 
he would have been able to like yeah. <laughs> to survive being in space without the space helmet on. But he makes it back in, and he ends up turning off the computer. He ends up yeah. deactivating Hal. And that's an intense scene, um, which I found. Uh, that scene is really done, done really well, I feel like, because it just looks nice when he's killing Hal. Yeah, I and, mean, he's in this really eerie. beautiful red glowing space that and he's floating yeah because there's no artificial gravity at that point so he's just in between these red glowing boxes and he's slow he's slowly slowly unscrewing these processors and as he unscrews it the hal starts singing this song called daisy and Daisy, there's there's actually a reference. Um, so it's intentionally put in there because Daisy is um, was a song that was played on one of the original IBM computers in the early 1960s. Um, Yeah, so the song's actually called Daisy Bell, um, and this, um, what he's called the father of computer music, his name's Max Matthews, um, in 1961, he performed the song Daisy Bell on the computer as kind of like a, like, a, like a promotional kind of thing and saying, like, look what computers can even produce music, um, and that's just another connection between IBM and uh, yeah. the, and the movie. Um, I mean, they physically IBM physically worked with the developments of computer sequences, um, and that became kind of a controversial thing because, as you said, IBM is one letter off from HAL, and there's kind of controversial thoughts on that because um, Kubrick actually wrote to his publicist Robert Karras and said um, that he was worried about IBM's reception to the depiction of a quote psychotic computer um, and Karras went back to IBM and like confirmed everything and said um, and they said that IBM was aware quote that hell causes hu- human deaths End quote, and they would not object to screen credit if quote IBM is never associated with equipment failure. End quote, and that kind of like there's a consciousness of the connection between IBM and uh, computer malfunctions, um, but even though there's those differences, um, there were people who said like. Um, it was Ar- I think it was Arthur C. Clarke had said, "Oh my gosh, if we would have known that, then we would not have like if we put those connections together as far as the HAL like that that was an accident mm-hmm. that didn't happen." But then um, I believe it was Fred Ordway who said, um, "No, that was that was intentional. It was it was like a it was a fun thing we were putting in there." So there's. There's a dispute on that, yeah. so you know we'll never know, unfortunately, what yeah. the real. I bet it 
I would be hard to have NASA scientists and no one pick up that they're one letter off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but some people are just too smart and don't pick up That's on those true. like super simple things. <laughs> um, so then the movie, so then Hal dies, um, and there's a really iconic scene. I think it's probably the scene if you type into YouTube, like, 2001 Space Odyssey, this is the scene you're going to get, but it's also equally... <laughs> There will be, like, a dozen YouTube videos then explaining the scene to you. Yeah. And I didn't look at any of those because I didn't want to ruin it. (laughs) I wanted to, like, try and figure it out on my own. But it's so weird, you guys. Please, please look up the video. But, um, so the main character, Dave Bowman, the one who's still alive, who should have imploded, right? Yes. Um, he... Eventually, he gets he appears in a bedroom that's like Louis the Sixteenth <laughs> furnishing. Yeah, so he ends up survive. He ends up he kills quote kills Dave, or sorry, he kills <laughs> Hal, um, turns him off, and he takes one of the pods and searches. He goes towards the electromagnetic field. He finds out um, as he as he turns Dave off. He hear he sees a video of what the true mission is. So he actually takes one of the pods and continues the mission. Um, and he goes through this super psychedelic um, black hole. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what it is, <laughs> but it's one of the most famous sequences in all of film of all time. Uh, the of these flashes of light just. Panning by through these like what look like flat planes, and then these colored molten images goes on for twenty minutes at least. It's actually more. I'm not don't know the exact actual runtime, but this this portion of the movie is actually what almost made the movie so popular. They started marketing it to um, almost like the counterculture as mm-hmm. the ultimate trip. And, you know, people being stoned or taking acid could just... would just love this portion of the movie. Um, and it's really... It is really stunning, especially in the 60s. We may look at it today and think, oh, you know, okay, this is, like, a crappy special effect. But it's actually, like, it was... At the time, it was really novel. Um... So he ends up going through this, this like f- going through time and space, and everything is shifting, and it's really beautiful. And then all of a sudden, ends up in this gridded, lit bedroom where the actual walls and floor and ceiling are all these like gridded lights. But all the interiors are like Louis the Sixteenth, and there's this kind of there's this kind of idea of you know Louis the Sixteenth almost being like the pinnacle of like a style, and a pin the you know some might say the pinnacle of culture, and it represents the the cultural elite and the and the, this high point of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so. How I see it is that is is in that way 
where you have the, this high point of culture and then you have it, it being it almost ending because as he's in this space he grows old within a matter of seconds time just is negligent and it's weird you don't see it happen like while he's like walking it's like all of a sudden there's an old man and you're like is this the same guy yeah I was so confused. I had to rewind. I was like, what's happening? Because, yeah, it's, well, that's the thing. Time just doesn't exist. He goes through this entire thing. I mean, we're looking at it as through time. Yeah. Our perception of time. But it, that doesn't matter in this space. So at one moment, he's laying in bed as if he's dying, and he reaches out, and the monolith appears right in front of him. And it's this idea of him dying and a new consciousness being born. And because he's in the presence of the monolith. And that monolith is accelerating the evolutionary process. And he ends up being reborn as this giant fetus floating in space. (laughs) Yeah. It's so strange and there's so many different ideas of what that represents i mean there was one idea that it was it represented the atomic age and it was almost as if it was going to blow up and and like be catastrophic the world would end um i don't know what it means but it's beautiful to watch Mm -hmm. and that's the fun part of not knowing what it means almost like gets you more interested and more involved with the story and more fascinated. So when you watch it again and again, you know, some it's a slow movie, but the whole point is that you're kind of just so engaged in what's going on mm-hmm. and trying to figure it out because it doesn't make sense. No. <laughs> and it, I wondered, like, what went through my head was, so then what happens to everyone else? So, like... How how does then, like, his, like, death and then, like, the rebirth of a new... Like, then what happens? I was like, I need a sequel. Yeah, there (laughs) is actually a sequel. There is? I didn't know that. It's called 2010. Whoa. Yes. What? I... This is embarrassing. I have not seen it. (laughs) No! (laughs) I have not seen it. Because it's... Apparently it's decent, but I kind of... Not, not that I'm a purist, but I kind of want to just stay where you stay are, stay where I am, yeah. and enjoy it. I, well, I, it's I'll not, watch the sequel and let yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, deal. Um, but it's also not done by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, who did it? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I have to look that up. So JT and I made this a two-parter. So stay tuned for the episode on Clockwork Orange.